all the ropes of how to perform their job. Everything from how to get around to come uh, in the company, how to badge into the office, um, how to find the bathroom, where's the food, where are the snack machines, um, to actually performing their tasks, to actually maybe doing some programming, um, using computers, those sorts of things. Now, if you're one of those engineers, you wanna make sure that you have a good mentor assigned, right? A bad mentor, and you don't know where the bathroom is. Things kind of go bad. The engineer might end up with bad habits if you have a bad mentor. They may have a bad attitude. But a good mentor set will set you, if you're a new guy or gal, on a good path, with a good start, with a positive outlook of how the company is running and what's going on. And isn't that kind of what we want for in life? To have a good role models, to have good mentors and I remember as a young dating couple with, with, with my wife, um, we would gravitate towards the, those older couples, um, the young marrieds, those with families, with kids, with the goals that might, we might be able to learn the ropes, if you will, of what a relationship is. As a young man, you seek out older men, married men, uh, those who are working, those who are in a different stage of life, so that you might be able to learn from them and be able to then have, hopefully, what we might consider a more successful life. These are, in engineering parlance, called the best practices of how to live life, right? Best practices. And this is exactly what we've been doing these last few weeks in our study of our Lord Jesus. We've been going over best practices. We've been looking at snapshots of Jesus and trying to refer to our ultimate mentor, Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at Jesus Christ, Christians often think that as long as we copy what he does, then we're, and, and then we're sanctified. But the reality is that as image bearers of God, it's more than just what we do. It's more than just copying behavior. And what we're looking for to, tonight, what we're looking for over these last few weeks, has been to understand that really we are image bearers of God. That it is more than behavior. That it is our nature to do these things. And that our being reflects the nature and quality and the being of who Jesus Christ is. In other words, we are more than copycats, however imperfectly we might copy. We are more than copycats of what Christ showed us. We are fully human, just as Christ was fully human. We fill ourselves, though, with other desires, with other needs, with other wants, and find anything else but God to follow, but God to emulate. It's our sin that gets in the way. But the God-created state, the God-created desire, your image, was meant to reflect God's goodness, character, and activity. And it is in those things, in God's image, that you were made, that you will find fulfillment, that you are made complete. And it is in when we do these things, as God has done them, we find a sense of pleasure. And that is appealing, again, to our that status of us as image bearers of God. If you enjoy creating, you reflect God's creativity in your art, your prose, your craft projects, um, your gardening, your home projects, making models, making music. When you do these things and you enjoy them, you're reflecting God's create, creative activity. When you work hard and find satisfaction in doing a good job and turning in a good report or turning in a difficult project at work or scrubbing to clean a fry grill really well or attending to a patient's wounds or editing a video, you are enjoying that aspect of your image reflecting God's energy as a worker who brings order out of chaos. When you hand out a tract, when you help a coworker, when you share food with a homeless person, and when you ride, uh, give a ride to a neighbor, you find joy in those things because you are reflecting God's generous mercy and patience and his desire 
to share truth with all. But we find substitutes for God. We find substitutes for filling our image with something else because our desires, our selfish desires are so much easier to, thought, to fulfill than trying to seek after God. Sometimes part of this is honestly, we just don't know what God looks like. We don't understand him. And as we study Jesus, we are studying the character of God. As we are studying the character of God, we are studying essentially what God intends for us to be, what we are meant to be. So far, our study into the life of Jesus speaks to our understanding of faith and practice personally, how we uh, relate to God. And now this week, we're going to see how we relate to one another and what it means to practice being the image bearers of God as a church collectively. Tonight, we will see that demonstrated to us through Jesus's work, and his actions will paint for us a picture of the gospel and a model for ministry for believers. We'll see three points tonight. First, we'll see Jesus' goals during the Last Supper that were very specific and in a knowledge of what he knew it was coming. And with this knowledge, we'll see what Christ was driving to do. Second, we'll also see that even the people closest to Christ, who knew Christ the longest in his public ministry, did not understand his mission. And Jesus corrected that. And that's what we'll see in the third point. We'll see that Jesus' lesson was not only for his own, to teach his own mission, but was also a lesson for his followers. In short, we will see three things. We'll see Jesus' intention. We'll see the, the apostles' dissension. And thirdly, and finally, we'll see the Messiah's revelation and the apostles' application. As we get into our text tonight, John chapter 13, we must remember that this is set within the Passion Week where Jesus was entered, entering into Jerusalem, where he had come on the back of a colt to great shouts of acclamation, people laying before him um, palm fronds as all a symbols and demonstration of his kingship and royalty. They hailed him as the coming saving king. But little did anybody know, everybody, including his disciples, realized that in a few short days, he did not he was going to suffer a much different fate, that he didn't come to overthrow the Jewish captors, those Jewish cap the captors of the Jews, the Romans, but he came to do something else and to free the people from a different sort of captivity. While we have the advantage of looking back and having sat on this side of history, those who knew Jesus did not. They did not know Jesus came to die, and the people wanted something else from him. They desired for a leader who would deliver, him and usher, deliver for them into an age and usher in a Jewish time where the people would be free of political oppression. And this is an attitude that affected the apostles too. You'll see in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, is a parallel account of what's happening tonight in John. In other words, it's Luke's account of the time of, of the Last Supper. And in there, Luke writes, a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Very curious event if they understood that Jesus did not come to conquer, but they did not understand that. It is sobering to think on the night before Christ goes to the cross, his followers were arguing over who was most important, who was the most influential, who was going to be the biggest name in the kingdom. You can only imagine what was going through Christ's mind during this time as he was preparing very clearly for his own death. 
The people closest to him, the people who should have understood him were jockeying for position. How does it make you feel at work when you sit in a status meeting and you know your coworker is sitting there trying to puff themselves up at your expense? While we might not have access to Jesus' thoughts, we can certainly see his deeds and hear his words in tonight's passage. So let's turn to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What we see here in these verses is Jesus' intention for his disciples. This intention is formed from knowing a couple of things. First off, knowing his destiny and also knowing and understanding his love for the people. First, Jesus knew his destiny. This is seen throughout John chapter 13 through 17. In these chapters, it records an extensive amount of material, Jesus' last words to his disciples. And throughout these passages, it very clearly demonstrates Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus knew that his hour had come, John 13, 1. Jesus speaks of greater works than these, the ones that he has shown, while will he, the Holy Spirit, do because I am going to the Father, John chapter 14, 12. John 16, 28, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And finally, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, 11, Jesus prays to the Father, I am coming to you. While Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God, that doesn't soften the blow of the work that is at hand. He knew the end was coming. But it must have been gut-wrenching to bear the thought of what was to come and to see what his disciples were doing at the time and what their state of mind was. You can clearly know that Jesus was in anguish as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ exalts the Father's work in his life he, and simultaneously prays for the people. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Jesus turns to the agony that he feels. John, in Luke 22, 42 for, um, 44, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus knew the end was near for him. Second, Jesus loved his people. He knew this. His own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, right? John 13, 1. We see Christ's mind was full of knowing his death was imminent and that those with whom he was spent three years with would be left to the authorities, Jesus loved his people. This is evidence throughout the chapters here in John, for they all reflect a care for them, for the care for the trials that they would soon about to endure. His care was very personal. He lays out throughout 13 through 17, very personal instructions, very specific things for the disciples. Jesus warns Peter that he will deny him, John 13, 38. Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14, 6 very specifically addressing uh, something that Thomas probably was thinking. Jesus instructs Philip as to his own nature. Believe me that I am the father and the father is in me. Jesus tell them each very specifically to keep the commands he laid out for them and that they will receive comfort in the form of the coming Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus' last instruction culminates in 
what is called the high priestly prayer, recorded in John 17, where Jesus lays bare his heart before the Father and for the people Jesus led. Jesus loved his people. So if we know that Jesus loved his people, and if we know that Jesus knew the end was coming, we have to understand that whatever happens in these chapters is going to be of great significance to him. Imagine if you knew when your last days were to be. Well, how would you spend your last time? How would you spend your last few hours here on earth? You would want to do it. Not You would not want to waste that time. You would want to spend it with people who were significant. You want to make sure people knew what you thought of them. Hopefully good things, right? So we see, we know that whatever happens is of great significance. We continue into the next couple of verses in John's uh, in John chapter 13, and we see that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he doesn't launch immediately into a speech. What he does is he starts with an action. It's amazing to think Jesus knew of his own position within the cosmic order, Right? Jesus chapter 13, 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, says Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by all, by him, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus knew he was Lord of creation. You know, if I knew that, I'd have a pretty big head, right? Wouldn't you? And yet we make two remarkable observations here. First observation, take note of Jesus' dress. And second, take note of Jesus' actions. First is dress. In Hamlet, Polonius gives to his son the advice to find and wear clothes that will impress others. Quote, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. At work, those desiring to get promoted are often told by their mentors, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. The goal, of course, is that you will wear and give others more reason, to, whatever you wear, gives others more reason to respect you in a way clothes suggest function. If you dress like a manager, well, by Jove, you must be managerial material. Therefore, we should promote you. Whether this is true or not, it does kind of reveal the intention of the person dressing, does it not? Thus, a person, how a person dresses, what they wear, what they present to the people around them will speak to what drives them, what motivates them. And here in John 13, what Jesus wears is significant, and that the leader of the young Christian movement dresses as a common slave, reflects Jesus' intention to be a slave to others. John points out that points the clothes out because it illustrates the deeper reality that Christ would be the ultimate servant at the direction of the Father. Second. Jesus' actions. Take note of Jesus' actions. The act of washing the disciples' feet in the clothes of a slave is a visible representation of what the Son was sent to do, and that is to cleanse humanity of what makes them dirty. 
Our feet are among the most dirtiest, smelliest, grossest part of a person, especially after you've played basketball. Feet are not nice things. Imagine how dirty the typical disciple's feet was at this time. The disciple who had just come in off the street, dirty, dusty, muddy roads, road trod upon by donkeys, horses, and full of filth. Not to mention, they wore sandals. Through the action of making dirty feet clean as a servant, Jesus is pointing to the deeper reality, and the act of washing feet foreshadows his death that would make people clean, that would make the vilest of sinners clean before God. We understand what Jesus is doing because we stand on this side of history and seeing it. But the reality for disciples is that within a few hours, they would be ready for cover. They would be in fear of their lives. They'd be locking themselves behind doors. They'd be lying about whether or not they knew Jesus. There was great uncertainty for them during this time. Peter, the brashes of disciples would quail at the questions of a lowly servant. They would huddle and they would lock themselves in and they were ill-prepared for what Jesus had come to do. And this is shown in our next point where we see Jesus' reaction, where we see the disciples' reaction to Jesus' work. Peter's dissension. Let's turn from Jesus' attitude towards the attitude of those who were close to him. When we look at the next few verses, see that those who were close to Jesus misunderstood his mission. Peter, Peter clearly did not understand the intent of the washing, or God's intent, really. The disciples held a common belief at the time. The coming Messiah, as we said before, would come to do very different things, that they would free them of political oppression, that they would allow them to be able to worship God freely. Jesus anticipates Peter's misunderstanding and crafts his response to Peter in very subtle ways. But let's look at the two men's words. We'll look at Peter's words. We'll look at Jesus' words. Peter puts out a few statements, and those statements are a dissension against Jesus' actions. And the first of these two of these three statements is this. Lord, do you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. These statements reflect Peter's incredulousness, his surprise that the Lord would stoop so low to humble himself to the point of doing it in an unimaginable dirty task that they themselves would do, would not do. In many ways, Peter's attitude is the same attitude that feeds a cult of celebrity. People pump up and put on pedestals those who we follow. We want to revere and worship before a person who is better and greater than us because we find value in that. I think in a way we value our worth by the worth of those whom we follow. If we value money, we esteem those who live luxurious lives in mansions, travel in private jets, eat the finest foods, and we disrespect those people who make their own clothes or hunt the feet for themselves or make their own houses. If we value power, we esteem those who control many men or corporations and ignore those who are just merely worker bees. If we value good looks or athletic prowess, then we esteem supermodels and athletes and disregard those who just don't match up talent-wise. If we value smarts, we esteem intellectuals and we put down dumb people. In a like way, Peter wanted a man whom he could point to and point to and say to others, look, look at this fellow. Look at who we follow. Look how great he is. Look how full of virtue he is. Look what he has done. Come and follow likewise. It's easy to follow people you admire and those you wish to become. 
Peter's third statement boldly states this after Jesus rebukes him. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Hey, good old Peter, jumping in with both feet in the tit of deep end. He's brash and bold and full of confidence, and that's, this statement reflects that. Well, so thinks a disciple. If the feet are good enough to be washed, why not the rest of me? Let's do it all. Come on, Jesus, bring it on. These words describe enthusiasm. I'll give Peter that. I also think it shows a bit of overconfidence. It doesn't reflect that, again, a few hours later, Peter would be shrinking by a fire, cloaking himself in darkness, mumbling and denying that he ever knew Jesus before a servant girl. This overconfidence is not humility. It holds a much higher view of self. It holds a much higher view of your own strength than what was proven. Remember again, at the Last Supper, the disciples had argued over who would be greater. And it's into this context that Peter says, I am going to be greater. Peter's response does not reflect Jesus' humility, but it reflects the heart of a people who don't want to be humble. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to serve others. There is a reason scripture states that our confidence in the Lord is not in and not in ourselves. Our confidence is found in God and not in who we are. For the Lord is sure and steady and reliable, and we are not. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, and he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Confidence is not based on God's wisdom. Confidence is not based on God's wisdom. It's foolishness. Now, Jesus' response to Peter's bold statements is quite subtle. Jesus simply says a few things in response. What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, after the crucifixion, he's really saying, you will understand. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. No one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. These all point, of course, to the rather surprising and necessary and complete nature of Christ's mission, that is, to come to die for man. Peter and the disciples were focused on the worldly aspects of Christ's work and did not understand it, and yet God was firmly in control of what the real problem was. While Peter and the apostles were thinking that the physical act before them was to free the nation, to free their religion, Jesus' intention in the demonstration was to free the people. It was unexpected because the disciples thought the biggest problem was a political one, but the truth is the biggest problem was the disciples themselves. The crucifixion was a necessary act as payment to be rendered in satisfaction of the, of the Father's justice, which then means mankind can come before the Father once the payment is paid, wholly and completely clean. We see the disciples kind of got it wrong, and while we are about to soon be confronted with the reality that would correct their misconceptions, while they were soon to be confronted with the reality that would correct their mis misconceptions, Jesus made some parts of his lesson a little bit clearer to them, as we will see in our next uh, next point. While they did not get to the larger spiritual uh, illustration, while they didn't understand the big picture, while they didn't fully understand the um, salvation that was coming, Jesus then turns and says, well, you know what? There's something here for you. I want to teach you now. So let's go to our last point. As Jesus finishes his task, he puts his garments back on and starts. Do you understand what I have done to you? 
<laughs> Up until now, Jesus has been referring to a larger spiritual meaning than the act of uh, that the act of washing dirty feet represented. That it had a theological significance. Okay, Jesus though switches a little bit. He flexes on the moment, and he realizes that they he knows that they are that, they, that the disciples don't understand that big theological picture. And he says, "Well, I'll tell you what. There is something that you can do." And he says this, he says in 13, 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And then in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And again in 16, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. While it shows as commanded disciples to be servants, this is a command that reveals, that the Messiah reveals truth, that Christ did not come to be the ruler on earth just yet, but he came to be the servant of many. This revelation leads to the disciples' application. And the application is that just like Christ, the disciples were to be servants. Christ was their mentor. They were to be servants just as he had demonstrated to them. John 13, 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do. You should do just as I have done to you. In a deeper, richer sense, when we serve one another, when we are willing to put aside our self-fullness, we reflect the character of Christ's humble character in our own character, and we point to his sacrifice. This shows others in a very tangible way the humility and servanthood that God demonstrated through Christ and that God loved them first. When we are humble to serve one another, we are alluding, giving, um, giving a concrete example of the work that Christ did. The application is very easy, you might think, right? How can we serve one another as Christ served? We should humbly serve. Go, go ahead and do it. Be humble. What does it look like? Well, let me give you a, a few examples of what this, what this might be. Well, for one thing, we could wash one another's feet. That'd be pretty obvious, but Really, that's not something we really um, do these days. But there is something we can do. Do we clean one another's apartments? I remember we asked some friends to watch our cats while we were away. And after our vacation, we arrived home, kind of happy that the cats had not burned the house down. And we realized as we walked in the house that all of our shoes, normally strewn about, total disarray, dusty, were clean, perfectly lined up, ordered, and organized. We also realized that all our dishes have been done and put away. Have you tried putting away stuff in your own kitchen? It's difficult for you to do it in somebody else's kitchen. It's almost impossible. And yet they had done our dishes and put them all away. The dining room table was straightened up. The mail was neatly ordered and organized. Junk mail over here, bills right here, stuff important here, personal stuff right there. A log of the cat's movements and diet were carefully recorded in a log. Now, we only asked them to throw down some kibble and scoop the poop. What they did was more than we asked for, and I was humbled by their service. Another way humble service could look comes from an illustration of Josh Kira, um, a great, uh, provided a great personal illustration of what humble service looks like to him. Josh was discussing two to men um, that doing the dishes after dinner was difficult. Now, it's easy to say, men, when your wife finishes a meal, help wash the dishes. But it's a difficult command when the TV or the PlayStation beckons. At that moment, 
I myself admit, I'd rather be somewhere else. Sorry, Steph. Um, anywhere else than cleaning the kitchen. Josh noted that at that moment, the thing that you least want to do is probably the thing you ought to be doing. And this is what humble service looks like. Finally, one more illustration of humble service comes from this article. George M. Steed, 95, a retired missionary for Overseas Missionary Fellowship, where he served the Lord for 58 years, died Wednesday, September 12th, 2007, at Heart of Lancaster Regional Medical Center. Mr. Steed graduated from the Prairie Bible Institute in 1935 and served at the China Inland Mission Overseas Missionary Fellowship in China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the United States from 1935 until 1993. May I repeat, 58 years. He was a member of Christ Church of Oak Brook, Illinois, and attended Calvary Church in Lancaster, and also worked with Chinese Christian organizations in Torrance, California, and San Francisco. George Steed served at our old church, Bread of Life, for a number of years before he left for Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and retirement. He was large compared to the others in the church, with a crop of white hair, wireframe glasses, and always a smile. I remember his handshakes with a big hand and that smile. It was great. He would be up front during the bilingual services next to the Cantonese pastor who was speaking. And then the pastor would stop and look probably over and up at Reverend Steed, who would then translate for us in English. Then at the end, Reverend Steed would close the service with a benediction, first in Chinese, and then in English, arms raised to the sky. But what I will remember about Reverend Steed is what a friend of mine who was on staff shared. While at Bread of Life, Reverend Steed would clean the toilets. Here was a man, retired from the missions field with great honor, respected in the church, asked to lead and serve, and as we think, earned his way into a well-deserved life of retirement ease. But there he was, scrubbing toilets. This to me is an example of a servant, somebody willing to think of others above himself, one who didn't think of himself as any more special than the next person and willing to put that into action. Now, I wanna turn a little bit as old people are wont, that would be me, to meander, to kind of talk about things, to grouse, talk about humility and what humility really is. The examples of service I just pointed to are good and we can call ourselves humble if we could emulate these actions, right? But we might miss the point. We might just assume humility is modesty. And as long as we don't brag ourselves about too much and do the right things, we'll be okay. But the danger is that there would be an inward attitude that would be masquerading as what looked like um, good deeds. We might say or do one thing, but our hearts betray our words or our works. A really low view of self, conversely, might actually be the same thing. If you view yourself as a really low person, it might still be self-centered because it leaves out the God who exercised power through you. Let me argue that being humble, really being humble, is really an act of assuming a posture where your view of self is in relationship to God. That humility is an act of assuming a posture where your view of self is in relationship to God. That is, you define yourself as one of God's people. Humility is not humility unless it is in relationship to something greater. We call God Lord and King. 
and lords and kings have their subjects. And these subjects humbly put aside all that they value for themselves in favor of loyal service for their king. Now I ask you, do you see your life? Do we see our lives in service to our God? Or is our God the insurance policy in case my life gets too far out of control and I need some help to get back to where I need to be? God demands from us a vision, a desire, an intent to further his mission and to humbly put our self-interest to the side. The mission God calls us to is this, found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's commonly called the Great Commission. And Jesus, after he rose, wrote, said to his disciples, and he charged them, and he said this to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' authority comes from God. And he then charged the disciples with that mission to go into the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. As spiritual descendants of these disciples, that is our charge as well. We are to go into the nations. We are to baptize others in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to teach people to observe all that God commanded us to observe. Now, we can stay, spend an entire series on what this means and the implications but I only want to focus on a couple of things, a couple of few applications of humble service and how the Great Commission applies to that. I want to talk about three different areas in which, in which the relationship of self to God should drive us in humble service. First area, leisure time. First, we humbly serve in the way we use our leisure time. We tend to define leisure time as me time, right? I need some me time. Time spent to take care of myself. I would like to make some definitions here because I think that taking care of self is too narrow and if applied too liberally results in lives that are self-full and not self-less. Let's define what leisure time is. I want to say that leisure time is time not spent in your primary vocation, in eating, in serving the call of God, in taking care of medical or personal hygiene needs, and in sleep. They are all necessary and required things to live. The time that is not doing these things is leisure time. It's everything else. Now, I fully admit, I'm no scholar here. So if you think you can add to these categories and whatnot, go for it, okay? But I just humbly offer this to you as our discussion points tonight. Now, how you spend your leisure time is important. And there are many ways you can use it. I would like to challenge us all to see that leisure time activities should be viewed as orienting ourselves to do any of the other things better vocation, eating, serving, care, sleep. And because we've been called by the Great Commission, we are to submit our leisure time to God, to doing God, the Great Commission better. Now, in these times, the pandemic times, there have been a lot more me time to throw about. With less commuting, with less chances to hang out, less time to chill with others, no time to eat out, not even allowed to go out walking sometimes, Without even the need to travel to visit for holidays gone, we suddenly have all this extra time on our hands. The decision for you has been for this past year is how you are going to use your me time. Your leisure time should not be used to expand or fulfill our own God-less desires. It should instead be used to increase our capacity to fulfill a Godward destiny. Now, 
I'm not saying that your leisure time should be spent 100% in worship or 100% in direct ministry in church, although some of it should. I'm not saying that 100% of your leisure time should be spent in prayer and meditation, although some of it should. I'm not saying that 100% of your leisure time should be spent in theological study, although some of it should. I am saying you should see leisure time as a God-given resource to be wisely utilized to expand your capacity to serve God. Leisure time is a God-given resource to be wisely utilized to expand your capacity to serve God. Now, let's apply some of this to a principle that is near and dear to all of our hearts, entertainment. Entertainment, sports, movies, fiction, music, etc., can often be very empty, God-dishonoring, aberrant, crude, degrading, hellbent. However, entertainment as a leisure activity can be used for good because good entertainment inspires. Good entertainment teaches us to culture or reveals something to us about the world or ourselves that mere facts cannot do. Entertainment can allow us to imagine a different world, put ourselves into somebody else's shoes, and among other things, can be a cultural touchstone into which the gospel can be preached. But I ask you, as an aside, is God informing your entertainment or is your entertainment informing your God? I am saying that you should use your time to get to learn to what is going on in your community, to think deeply about God-honoring, God-concerning issues, prepare yourself for engaging others, and these are ways that entertainment could be used. Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul's saying, think about good stuff. Capt take captive in your own mind good things. Now, I'm not saying do not allow your me time. What I am saying is that do not allow your me time to become an object of worship or a means to worship yourself altogether. Me time oftentimes comes at the expense of being effective in God's service. Too much focus spent on hobbies might take away from opportunities to be at, in fellowship, loving brothers and sisters in Christ well. Too much time spent in me time activities may com compromise your witness with your family and your friends. It might stifle your passion for the Lord, replacing it with passion for other things. There's a time and place for using leisure time to escape the worries of today. But it should not be an excuse to escape today or dishonor God altogether. Another way humility can speak into um, our lives. Another challenge we have in humility is that it... It asks us to place people um, and your relationship with those people in perspective to God's relationship with them. Humility asks us to see other people as God sees them, not as we see them. Humbly seeing others as having value in God's eyes is totally separate from what we see in, with our own eyes. It's a challenge to see members uh, of church or at work or people at work as objects of God's love because we're always worried about what they're going to give us or what we could get from them or what can they do for us or how they hurt me. But I ask, I say, so instead of seeing my relationship with people as most important and what they can give me, what's most important is to see what the other person's relationship with God is and what is important for them according to God. I must admit my own fear of people's opinions or my fear of getting too involved with people because I don't want to spend the time with them, or a fear of being asked too much, 
or being asked too personal questions by others or a fear of appearing stupid with other people or uncool or something has caused me not to seek better fellowship with people. It's, it's led me to ways where I don't love others well. When we get angry or frustrated about Zoom fellowship, are we neglecting humbly serving others by allowing our personal feelings about a particular medium get in the way? Instead of submitting to God, are we submitting to our own anger about things? Humbly seeing that others are important to you are, are as important to you as God is important. Um, see that others are as important to you are to God um, is the first step in loving him well. Now, let's turn to the workplace. With your workplace, you have to see that as part, that, that part of going to work is part of the Great Commission. And that is a part of your call to go to all nations and for you to make disciples in the workplace. Too often we see the workplace as a place where I earn my money, I make my mark, I do my thing, and we separate it from the influence of God. We sort of keep God at an arm's distance at work and have an attitude that work is for us, if not in thought, certainly in deed. But if we were to see that all areas of our lives are in submission to God, if we were to understand humbly that our workplace is a part of what God is asking us, where God has placed us, if we are humble enough to admit that our position at work is at God's pleasure, we realize God's kingdom extends there as well. There are many ways this, this many ways in, what, in the way that this works itself out. You can preach the gospel lovingly to a cube mate because you know them for several years if the project is that long. Slowly you can understand their positions and viewpoints and you could speak to them. Um, you can counsel them in difficult times if they have um, problems with a girlfriend or uh, maybe um, trouble, uh, trouble with family or perhaps a parent has passed away. You are able to speak truth into their lives. Maybe you have coworkers at work who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, albeit at a different, different church. You could speak truth into them. You can encourage them. You can call them to task. You could ask them questions. You can fellowship together. Look for opportunities to do that. You have to see that your coworkers, the people you work with, are not just there to achieve your career goals, but they are objects of God's love with whom you share a vocation with. And yes, you must be excellent in your workplace, in your vocation. But part of that excellence is to be excellent to others, to make others better. We are image bearers of God. Christ gives us a picture of what it means for us to, what this means to us practically. And we see tonight in the display of Christ's humility towards his own followers through the act of washing dirty feet, we see Christ's humility. We are called to emulate Christ in this humility and in his example of service, just as we saw him painting that ultimate picture, that foreshadowing of the biggest thing that he did, that is to go to the cross. We are painting a similar picture. Just as Christ was humble, if we are humble, we are pointing people in our small way to the cross. We explore what humility is to us. And what it means to put ourselves in a proper perspective by clearly understanding our relationship to our God that he calls us to service in his kingdom. Now, I open tonight talking about how we should emulate Christ, not by copying his deeds. Rather, we should be copying Christ by copying his attitude. His attitude is not something foreign to us or impossible to achieve. 
or the mountain that we cannot climb because we are the image bearers of God. And it, it is in Christ's nature, in God's nature, that shows us ultimately what we could be, what we could achieve, that we can be humble servants of others, driven by love and hope of heaven, just as Christ was. I want to close with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, to remind ourselves of what Christ gave up for our behalf, something that we ourselves are capable of doing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your words um, that cut us. And we ask, Father, that you would cut our spirits to the bone, that we would be laid bare before you, that you would reveal to us our pride where we attempt to steal your glory and for ourselves. Father, humble us. And we just pray, Father, that we're able to be humbled before it is too late. Help us to emulate our Savior, to see his humility for his, uh, to, towards his followers, that we can emulate that same humility to our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Teach us, Lord, um, speak to our hearts, and continue to be with us this evening. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.